Hello, and welcome to episode 46 of the Strength Ratio Podcast. I'm your host, Zachary Greenwald, joined as always by Kyle Klachenko. And today, we're continuing a topic that we had introduced last week, the topic of weight loss. Uh, Last week, we spoke specifically about uh, intermittent energy restriction, what the latest literature review uh, has uh, taught us and compared uh, intermittent energy restriction to continuous energy restriction, which is just your traditional form of caloric restriction, your traditional form of dieting. Uh, the past uh, uh, research conducted on that has all been in obese populations, so we started talking with Jackson Pios about what that might look like uh, for future athletic populations. Um, so we're continuing the topic of weight loss, but we're going to talk at first about uh, these general adaptations that we discussed with POS last week, but perhaps in a little bit more detail with our guests. And then we're going to get into topics of weight loss for different athletes and athletes who have different training goals and therefore different training stimuluses that will uh, perhaps uh, bring into consideration different dietary uh, uh, matters when we think about weight loss. So without further ado, we welcome Eric Trexler to the show. Eric, thanks so much for taking your time. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So just before, and if you like kind of a podcast OG, uh, you know uh, Eric Soboliski, and if you've been following us for a while, you know that uh, Eric, yeah, also Dr. Swole, aka Sobo, uh, has been someone who has consulted us in all things science-related. For all intents and purposes, he was our uh, science director of education. Uh, well, we asked Eric, who uh, was uh, at Chapel Hill around the same time as Eric Sobolewski, if he knew him, and it turns out that the two live together. So I think we're off to a great start already, Eric. And they're both named Eric. Yeah, we did in fact live together. And if you know Sobo, then you would also not be surprised to know that we had a prowler that was in our living room uh, at all times. <laughs> The first thing um, uh, Zach told me about Sobo was that he actually uh, had the, he had reverse hyper, but he wasn't and, allowed to. Yeah, but he had it like in a storage unit somewhere that he had to go use it. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Did you, you have the reverse hyper in the storage unit? <laughs> I, I was not aware of the reverse hyper in the storage unit. There was um, a reverse hyper in, in the storage unit, and he would go occasionally to use it, and he was talking with. Professor Ryan about putting it in his lab. Uh, I think he was working with Abby's husband, and that was a no go. So he would occasionally just go to the storage unit and use it until he brought it to the gym, uh, CrossFit Local, which is a little just a little plug for them uh, in Chapel Hill, uh, which is where I was out of, and we used the hyper there. But small world, um, <laughs> and I love the Prowler story. I'd never. I'm not surprised. I had never heard that from Sobo. Yeah. The Uh, thing about Sobo is that he just had a way of accumulating large weightlifting equipment. It just followed (laughs) him around. I I don't know how, but like, I I do remember knowing that he had more than like, he had somehow acquired a full squat rack that was just like sitting in storage somewhere in pieces. And with him, it was it was always just like, oh, I've I've obtained this enormous piece of equipment. Where can I put it? And so yeah. for him, it was always just you know figuring out where to set it up. But the stuff just found its way into his possession. 
That's awesome. <laughs> well, just as Sobo uh, was, and I think in spirit, he has uh, since uh, his time with us um, had his first child and they have another one on the way. So he, he's a bit busy. Uh, but since his time consulting us, uh, Eric, you work and, and now uh, in a much more professional uh, I think uh, full-time manner than Sobo did with us, though we're still uh, talking with him and he'll <laughs> be listening to this as he does all of the shows. Um, you are the science director of education for Stronger by Science. Newly, newly, newly appointed, appointed yeah. uh, science director of education for um, what was originally uh, Greg Knuckles' strength theory turned Stronger by Science. And if you want to just talk a little bit about what your job entails there and what Stronger by Science mission is, that would be awesome. Yeah. So Stronger by Science, um, I would say generally kind of fills a little niche in the fitness world where, um, you know, you could go straight to academic journals and, and get the straight up, you know, peer reviewed science from those journals. You could also go to any number of outlets to get very basic, simplified fitness information. Um, I think what we try to do at Stronger by Science is find a nice middle ground where we can maintain the nuance and the rigor of peer-reviewed science, but make it more accessible uh, in the way it's written, in the way it's packaged, um, the way it's explained. Uh, we, we try to make it very accessible and very usable to the, uh, the end user, you know. So I've written a whole bunch of peer-reviewed papers uh, in in throughout my, my PhD and we don't write it for the person who's actually going to use it. You know, science is written for scientists and a lot of times the athlete or the coach can't even physically access the paper because it's a, behind a very expensive paywall. Um, so with Stronger by Science, we try to get the information out there so that people can like actually access it, but we also try to make it more accessible in the, in the way it's written. Um, so what I do at Stronger by Science is a mixture of things. Uh, certainly producing content is a big part of it. Um, articles for now, um, we, we do intend to expand and start doing more audio and video information. Um, we also have a, a really talented team of coaches that take clients online that uh, a lot of people don't know that that's an aspect of the business, but it, it, it certainly is. And so one of the things that I do at Stronger by Science is essentially serve as a resource to that entire team of coaches. Um, so, you know, through our content and through our, our coaching, we're, we're just essentially doing our best to make sure that people who are interested in getting stronger, bigger, leaner, whatever, whatever the fitness goal is, we're just trying to make sure that we equip people to, to actually reach for those goals. So I, I, have and this I'm going to go back to Sobo for a second. Um, there was a talk that we had. This was 2013, where Sobo was saying that it would be kind of beyond his professional career. He even said like it, it won't even be in his lifetime that he sees the fruition of his work. And he was referring specifically to things involving supplementation and strength and power work. Like the field just at that time wasn't there. I think Schoenfeld got his PhD, for instance, in 2012. But now you look at the landscape and things just look a whole lot different. Uh, do you feel uh, or are, are you feeling 
similar things, not just perhaps training related, but also as we'll discuss here shortly in terms of nutritional sciences? Um, I don't know. I, I, I think, uh, I, I definitely think, you know, you mentioned that the, the field I'm general or kind of paraphrasing, but has made great strides recently. Um, and I, I would agree with that. Um, I, I think the field is at an interesting, uh, it's at an interesting point where we're starting to see a lot more interaction between academics and practitioners. Um, so I don't know if I'm fully answering your question, but, um, I, I would say that, you know, my take on where the field is, where it's come from, where it's going, I think it's generally a positive trend. I think the science is getting for the most part better. Uh, but more importantly, I think it's getting communicated to practitioners and athletes more effectively. And I think that there's a lot more interaction in a two way kind of relationship. I think more than ever, we have scientists who actually care about what practitioners tell them. Uh, and we have uh, practitioners who are interested in learning from scientists as well. So the whole premise of that relationship has to be a two-way street. Um, it can't be a bunch of, you know, a bunch of scientists with huge egos who think that practitioners should beg for their knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's got to be scientists who acknowledge they can learn from practitioners mm -hmm. and it's got to be practitioners who acknowledge they can learn from scientists. And I think we're at a spot right now in the field where that is more the case than it has ever been. Yeah. Or, I think at least in recent years. Yeah. I, I, I fully agree with that. It definitely seems, you know, back in the day that there was this huge separation that the practitioners knew what they knew or what they thought they knew. And then the scientists, had all their science and they, they knew what they knew and there was no back and forth between the two there or if there was it was very rare and uh what came to mind when you were speaking was i, I believe it was eric helms who a lot of eric's in this, mm -hmm, this yeah. <laughs> um eric helms who ha made the evidence-based pyramid and kind of showed that like a part of evidence-based practice is not only of course the the papers the meta-analyses and all that but uh, anecdotal evidence is also a very important part of that as well. And I feel like that's kind of what's shifted is there's been much more of this blend between the two. And I think uh, you have uh, people like yourself, Eric, who are scientists who lift, yeah. which, which is, uh, I think, a, a newer trend. And, and we'll get into this more when we talk about uh, training considerations uh, while perhaps using cardio as a form of weight loss versus resistance training. In the past, it had been a discussion strictly about uh, uh, it had been only obser uh, observing endurance as a training mechanism for weight loss because that's all the researchers did. But I think now, uh, I think that's been made possible by people like yourself who are lifting, who are able to kind of fill in that anecdotal void and, and, and kind of cross the bridge, so to speak. Yeah. And I, the, the important thing with anecdote is um, – Based on what you're telling me, I would think I agree with Eric. Um, I, I've hung out with Eric, and and he and I agree on most things. He's a uh, he's a smart guy. Um, anecdote has a place. Um, it's not at the top of the pyramid, but mm -hmm. um, it, you would be doing yourself a disservice if you are a scientist who lifts and you do research that relates to lifting, 
to completely disregard the observations that you see every day. Um, that, that, that serves no benefit. What it does help with is generating ideas and hypotheses. Um, and you know, you can use that to generate a hypothesis and then start looking at either investigating it yourself or figuring out if more rigorous types of evidence support that. So anecdote is great if you have the humility to place mm -hmm. it in the appropriate spot on that pyramid. Mm -hmm. um, so if you are at a spot where your anecdote doesn't agree with, with more rigorous evidence, and that evidence was, was obtained in very well done research, you have to have the humility to say, I think there's something wrong with how I'm perceiving my anecdote. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? If you can't do that, then leave the anecdote at home because it's clouding your judgment too much. But if you can contextualize it, it's very valuable information. Yeah. And it seems like with everything fitness, we say we have a, an architect who trains with us on site. You know, people don't pretend to be architects, but people like to take who are neither scientists nor uh, coaches their anecdotal experience and it kind of muddles the water either in popular culture or in just speaking amongst friends where evidence is of no part of the equation. So would you mind, Eric, starting us off with a little bit more of the evidence behind the general adaptations to weight loss and, and, and what all is going in uh, to uh, those mechanisms exactly? Yeah. Um, and that's a great segue because, um, what first piqued my interest in metabolic adaptation was observations of my own and observations from peers who worked with a lot of physique athletes and, you know, bodybuilding type clients. Um, but you know, what's commonly observed is you, you embark on a weight loss diet and we would expect that your metabolic rate will drop. Um, or your, your daily energy expenditure in general will drop. Um, and there's good reasons for that. Um, when you have a smaller body mass, you have lost metabolically active tissue. So of course your energy expenditure is going to drop. Um, but what people were noticing was it drops more than I thought it would, um, and so again, you have anecdotes and even a large aggregation of many anecdotes, but you still have to look at, is there actually rigorous science on this topic? And in this case, the answer is yes. Um, and so there's, there's actually been quite a great deal of research showing that it's not just that energy expenditure drops during weight loss, but it drops more than it should have based purely on losing active tissue. And so... There's a lot of adaptations that take place uh, to make that change happen. And, you know, one of the best researchers I've ever talked to used to always, he, whenever in doubt, it seemed like he would always fall back on evolution. He would say, for whatever I'm trying to explain in the hum human body, how does this make sense from an evolutionary perspective? Um, and so one way to think of metabolic adaptation is, essentially an evolutionary mechanism that helped us stay alive during uh, food scarcity. So if you've ever heard of the thrifty gene hypothesis, people often talk about it. Basically, the idea is humans who had the genetic predisposition to store fat when they overate 
were then able to actually live off of that stored fat when food was less available. You could look at metabolic adaptation as the other side of that coin, where it's not just that humans needed the ability to store fat, but we also appear to have mechanisms in place so that when we do start having low access to energy, um, whether we're doing it on purpose or not, we, we have adaptations in place that make us use our stored energy in a more economical manner. Um, so we basically uh, are restricting our energy expenditure so that we don't waste it in times of starvation. So what actually happens is we see changes that go all the way from the most powerful regulating structures in the brain all the way down to the microscopic mitochondria throughout you know, most of the cells in our body. Um, so for instance, mitochondria themselves become more efficient during energy restriction. Um, and there is research, very rigorous research done in animals showing this in rodents. And then some corresponding research in, uh, in humans that seems to very much back up what has been shown in rats. But the idea is that, you know, the mitochondria are, if you remember from like high school biology, the powerhouse of the cell. And what we need to do is convert the energy we eat into ATP, which is kind of the body's energy currency. You know, anytime you're doing something with the body that requires energy, you need ATP to fund that. Um, what we see is that during caloric restriction, uh, whether it's short, medium, or long-term duration, we see that the mitochondria become more efficient with the way they produce ATP. So they're still making ATP predominantly out of fat and carbohydrate, but they are able to essentially meet their ATP production quota using less energy, less of the carbohydrate and fat to fuel that process. Um, there are also a wide range of hormonal effects associated with caloric restriction. Um, if you were to look at one kind of guilty hormone and, and put all of the blame on one <laughs> without, without question, it would be leptin. Um, so leptin is produced by fat cells and it is produced mostly when the fat cells themselves are fat and happy and full of energy. And so what we see is that when fat cells empty, they produce substantially less leptin. And there's also some short-term regulation of leptin as well. So even before you've lost fat, if, if you start fasting, your leptin will drop quite a lot. So leptin responds to both short-term and long-term energy storage. But essentially, when we don't have energy, leptin is low. Um, and the reason that's important is because leptin uh, feeds back to the hypothalamus. And the hypothalamus is a brain structure that dictates a lot of things. I mean, the hypothalamus is a remarkably powerful regulating center of the brain. Uh, but most pertinent to our conversation, the hypothalamus has huge ramifications for our physical activity habits, but also our, our uh, energy expenditure, hunger-related cues. The hypothalamus really is kind of that main thermostat in the brain that is matching our expenditure of energy to the um, uh to our cues for intake and, and really everything in between. So leptin feeds back to the hypothalamus and induces very widespread effects. Um, 
some of some of that has to do with uh, subconscious activity. Um, you know, even like the, the craziest thing about metabolic adaptation is like just subconsciously you will fidget less when you're sitting in your chair. Um, you main po- maintain posture a little bit differently because it takes energy to do so. So some of these things are, are really dictated by the hypothalamus convincing the rest of your body to constrain energy expenditure. Um, and then the uh, leptin itself, mostly via the hypothalamus, also has a lot of effects on other hormones. So leptin's not the only one at play here. But what we do see, and there's actually really good research on this, if you were to give someone a leptin injection, you would reverse most of the metabolic adaptations that we care about. Um, so, you know, it, there, there's been research where people lose at least 10% of their body mass, which is a pretty substantial weight loss. And we see all these metabolic adaptations. And with the injection of exogenous leptin, uh, the majority of them are reversed uh, quite dramatically. That's the most uh, inconsiderate uh, research for a particular participant to be a part of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, well, I mean, it's yeah, it's one of those things where like, but for science, <laughs> it's for science. Um, they luckily this was done in overweight and obese people, so they were happy to lose the weight. Um, it's it wasn't the the most egregious example. Have you guys heard of the Minnesota starvation experiment? Yes, yes. I've heard it referenced frequently. Yeah, so that you want to talk about hardship for participants. Um, they, they took lean, you know, healthy body weight people and basically dieted them down to nothing. Uh, they were down to like four, 5% body fat. Um, there's pictures of them and it, it's, it's frankly quite jarring to look at pictures of them. They, they do not look well. Um, but, but yeah, so while that particular experiment was quite, um, quite a burden on the participants. It yielded uh, tremendously helpful data. Yeah. Um, but, but so metabolic adaptation is, it's not just leptin. We see changes in thyroid hormone and ghrelin, insulin, testosterone, estrogen, cortisol. There, there's a whole, a, a whole hormonal milieu that, um, that, that we associate with metabolic adaptation. And probably one of the one of the most pronounced features uh, of metabolic adaptation, you know, th- there's these all these different hormonal effects, which means it's going to influence, you know, reproductive health, um, hunger, activity level. Uh, but one of the things people are most concerned about with metabolic adaptation is energy expenditure, because they're basically they're they're dieting down, they're getting lean, and they're at a point where their energy expenditure is lower than they expected. So they have to continue reducing calories even more or increasing cardio even more. And so the question is what exact aspect of energy expenditure is getting reduced? You know, is it that we are, uh, is it that our muscles have become more efficient with exercise? Um, the answer to, to that is yes, but that's probably not the the main thing driving it. Um, is it that our resting metabolic rate has gotten lower? Um, again, the answer is yes, but only by a little bit. The really big driver is non-exercise activity. 
Um, and so there's a lot of different things that, that feed into what controls non-exercise activity. Um, but, but one of the more, um, consistent observations when it comes to metabolic adaptation is that when we are, uh, doing short-term dieting and, or losing substantial amounts of fat mass, our non-exercise activity gets constrained dramatically. Um, and so that is the aspect of energy expenditure. Um, the hypothalamus plays a huge role in it. Um, there's also conscious decisions we make that, that influence that. Um, but, but essentially what we're seeing to put metabolic adaptation in a nutshell is adaptations ranging all the way from brain to mitochondria that make your body more efficient at using energy. And, and so it's essentially an adaptation that makes it a little bit harder to continue losing fat, uh, and generally makes your life quite unpleasant when it comes to being super hungry, being super tired, uh, having issues with recovery from training, um, and then reproductive side effects that are, are quite unenjoyable as well. Mm -hmm. You uh, speaking of anecdotal experience, I would observe this is over the past three to four years, uh, uh, yeah, three to four years where when the weather was, uh, when it's nicer and where we live, it doesn't get too cold. Like while we're speaking uh, just last week, it was like negative 50 in, in parts of the country, but like where we live in, in the mountains of North Carolina, it doesn't get too cold, but I would observe how in the summertime, if I ran a certain uh, diet, meaning I, I had a certain uh, calorie intake for weight loss, and I just, you'd mentioned kind of like the, the choices and the decisions made around that. Well, you know, with the nicer weather, I would run my dog. I would, in the middle of the day, just kind of take a break and go outside and enjoy the weather. And it was something that didn't really seem to be connected to, uh, or it, motivation at least it wasn't an extreme diet hadn't been hit too hard to where i wasn't uh ever going to not run my dog and have a good time doing it so i'd like extend the distance if i felt good and that was just his exercise and i would still get my lifting in and i know that when it's a little bit colder and i'm not as inclined to be as physically active at least as it's marked by running my dog outside of training because if it's not running my dog or training, I'm going to be seated or laying down. I can run that same diet and see next to like zero weight loss. Yeah. Um, it's it, the thing about non-exercise activity. It, it involves everything. Like I said, it's maintaining posture. It's fidgeting. It is gesturing when you're talking. Like right now you can't see me, but I like use my hands a lot when I talk. And then it's the little things throughout the day like that, you know, are you taking your dog for a walk or not? And the thing about non-exercise activity is that it really adds up and, and makes up a very substantial portion of our energy expenditure. And it varies a ton between people. Um, so if you look at, at someone with, let's say we have two people with the same exact level of, or the same exact size body, um, they're uh, non-exercise activity could very realistically range. There, there could be a 1000 to 2000 calorie difference between them per day in terms of, uh, and that's on the extreme end, 
But there is tremendous capacity for, for this to vary both between individuals and within individuals. Um, and I would speculate that a lot of people, when, when they talk about gaining weight as they age, I would think non-exercise activity has a, a lot to do with that. Um, and like you were saying, like I had a very extreme example. Um, when I was working on my PhD, I uh, was still, you know, I was and am an active uh, competing natural bodybuilder. And my last prep was pretty intense, to be honest. Um, I had at least three people that worked in my department were asking my friends what was wrong with me. Like, like they thought I was losing weight because I was ill because I was getting so lean. Um, and the prep went well, but it, I felt, <laughs> I felt really, really lethargic and tired toward the end of it because that's part of the deal. Um, but yeah, there was just a time where I remember in my office, like somebody asked me for something that was not <laughs> really not a huge sacrifice on my part. And so mm -hmm. I did it, but I just so strongly wanted to not do it because it took some energy. And I, I just thought to myself, I was like, if this room that I'm sitting in was on fire, I would probably look at the fire and start making judgments about like, how likely is it to spread? Uh, how yeah. much time do I have before I really need to get up? Yeah. Um, it, what if I waited out? Like, with it, what are my what are my chances here? Like, it, it was time. <laughs> yeah, it was just insane. But like, you know, the, the stuff like that. The the imagine if you're in that position. You know how many little things throughout the day. You know when you get like halfway down the stairs and you realize like, oh, I forgot my phone charger. There is no chance that during prep you are going up to get that charger. You, you will, your phone will die. No one will be able to reach you. They'll all worry about you, but at least you didn't have to go up the stairs again. Yeah. Well, you know, you mentioned that thing, uh, not that thing, but you mentioned Eric, how as people age, it could be linked to this. And I don't know uh, if this has been researched, but that as you age, your neat, not, which is just, uh, sorry, your non-exercise activity levels, if, if the non-exercise activity levels go down, because I think at least for people listening who might not have a, a scientific uh, um, uh, education or I'm sure they might have trained, but they're probably hearing this in the context of like, oh, well, you know, when, when I was young, I could eat all of that. Or, uh, you know, when you're young, your metabolism's slow. And I think that most high. a high, sorry. And, and, and I think anyone listening to this, regardless of their, uh, their involvement with training or science has heard that. Uh, and you're saying that you think largely, or perhaps there is some evidence to say that it's not just the, uh, that when you're younger, your metabolism is higher. It could be that you are just simply more active. So, yeah, aging is not really my research area, so I haven't looked into this, but I am going to wildly speculate and just shoot from the hip here. And <laughs> uh, man, I, I bet within probably two minutes of a search, we would probably find evidence. I'm guessing we would find evidence suggesting that a reduction in non-exercise activity certainly plays a role in some of that weight gain we see as we age. Yeah, um, gotcha. you, you know, that, like you're saying that the whole like 
ah, I used to be able to getting away with so much more. I'm already there. You know, I'm not particularly old, but when I was in high school, I'd eat like crazy. And even in college, but I was walking around campus all day. I was at wrestling practice. I was, you know, going from class to class. Um, you just do a lot more physically throughout the day. And, uh, yeah, I mean, as that falls off, then it, it has a tangible effect on, you know, your total energy expenditure. Usually we don't, we don't notice reductions in non-exercise activity. And we certainly don't, we certainly don't notice them enough to make substantial changes to our food habits. And so like yeah. the, the, the reason that I speculate that, that this would be the case, um, I'll probably look into it the second I get off the, uh, <laughs> off the podcast here, you know, we're pretty good at predicting metabolic rate, even just based on body mass. Um, you know, it, and you lose a little bit of lean tissue as you age, especially once you get to like 50, 60 years old and beyond. But, but, you know, when people act like, like they've had this huge substantial drop off in their energy expenditure attributable to age, I would have to speculate that non-exercise activity plays an enormous role in that. Yeah. So this leads into, I think, a lot of significant questions, especially for those uh, who perhaps would fall under general population people who want to lose weight, who've heard, you know, uh, oh, well, CrossFit's good for you because of its high intensity interval training, uh, or uh, perhaps, uh, and as is maybe most common, you need to just do more uh, longer, slower aerobic type training. That's actually a question I was going to ask. Oh, and, yeah. And, and, and um, I think before we, we dive into some of these details, and maybe we can start first, Eric, with uh, I'll, I'll bring this back around as I tend to get ahead of myself sometimes with uh, considerations for aerobic training and, and perhaps why that was the only thing being recommended and, and what we know now. But um, before we get into aerobic training for fat loss, do you have any ways, because as people are listening to this podcast, <laughs> they're, they're probably trying to find ways to increase their fidgeting or to move around or thinking of ways to move more. And, and, you know, we have these fitness trackers that can tell us roughly like, or at least provide some insight into that non-exercise activity level. But do you offer any, uh, guidance as for how people can go about increasing their neat without it becoming like a, I, well, I have to get 2000 more steps on my Fitbit because like that, that seems to me like it could become a, a little bit, uh, Mental without is the only word I can think of saying. Yeah. So, well, there's, like I said, there, there's conscious and subconscious types of non-exercise activity. The subconscious stuff we can't control and we, you just got to let that go. Mm. You know, fidgeting, postural control, like the stuff like that, it's, it's just gone. So just, just leave it alone. Um, when it comes to more of the conscious decisions, I, I also get really hesitant about saying this is something that we should intervene on and actually do something about it. So I, I do know people that during prep maybe keep track of their step counts for the day and have a reasonable number that they that they try to shoot for each day, you know. And some people can make that work 
some people, it just drives them crazy. And they feel like they they feel like a hamster on a wheel where it's like they always have this kind of step quota that they're always working toward and it's hanging over them. So I, part of me is like, you know what, if you like doing the step thing, fine, but I really don't like to advocate it in a broad sense. Because like you mentioned, trying to do things that intentionally increase non-exercise activity, they can be psychologically quite draining. They kind of follow you around like a, like a rain cloud throughout your day. And I don't like that. Um, I think what you can try to do is, you know, there's basically some, some general best practices you can try to implement so that you are essentially attenuating the magnitude of metabolic adaptation that you face. Um, and I, I think some things that go into there are you know, either to attenuate the metabolic adaptation itself or some of the kind of secondary effects of it. I, I think best practices include making sure that your deficit is appropriate. So when you, you're losing weight, you have to create an energy deficit and burn more than you consume in terms of calories. But you probably need to have a very small to moderate deficit. You don't want to go absolutely insane and have a huge drop off in, in energy intake and create an enormous deficit. I, I think by exaggerating that caloric deficit, you're probably taking on more metabolic adaptation than you, than you ought to. And we, we've seen that in literature, correct? That those diets just kick back real fast. Well, I think the literature tells us a lot about taking approaches like that. We see that, you know, more extreme deficit deficits lead to some kind of more extreme uh, kickback in terms of some of the physiology. We also see that people generally have a, a pretty terrible time with it and generally tend to rebound pretty hard when, 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 the when they take their dieting to the extreme like that. And we've also seen that when you have a more reasonable deficit, which often, I mean, by definition kind of means a slower rate of weight loss, the composition of weight lost is much better, much better as well. And so we'll see that some of the endocrine related side effects, which are very much tied into metabolic adaptation are attenuated with a slightly slower rate of weight loss. We'll also see that you'll tend to use a, tend to lose a higher proportion of fat rather than lean mass. So I, I think smaller deficits and a lower uh, rate of weight loss overall are probably really good recommendations across the board. Certainly keeping a, a good resistance training program in your uh, approach to weight loss is, is advisable. Um, I think uh, managing the type and amount of endurance training you're doing also plays a role. And as you, it sounds like you guys talked about this on, on a recent podcast, but I think that certain nonlinear approaches to dieting also have potential to mitigate some of these effects of metabolic adaptation. So things like doing periodic refeeds or even longer diet breaks of a week or two at a time. I, I think that by going up to maintenance level and spending some time there, uh, you can start to kind of push your hormone levels back into a more comfortable range, um, start to kind of adapt back to being at energy balance and then initiate basically another wave of weight loss. So viewing it with, with this kind of 
idea of either doing short refeeds that are maybe two days in length or even up to like a two week diet break to try to convince your body that, um, I, I use that metaphorically, obviously there's no conscious thought involved here, but the, the body is essentially responding to starvation. And so one of the cool, one of the nice things about, um, nonlinear approaches that have refeeds or have diet breaks is that um, you're essentially sending a message to the body uh, through physiological means that everything's going to be okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it, it's basically responding to, we still have food here. Yeah. Cause we didn't evolve. We didn't co-evolve with supermarkets. So yeah. as far as our body's concerned, when there's very low energy availability, so even just a couple days of fasting or when there's chronic lack of energy and we start to see that our fat cells are shrinking and shrinking and shrinking, um, it, it, it is not just, it doesn't just make sense, but it's critically important that our body tries to fight back on that. I mean, that, that's kind of what has kept us around for a while. And I, I don't want to brag, but I think humans are doing pretty good, generally speaking. You know, we, we've increased our population quite a bit in the last couple thousand years. So we're doing fine with that. Um, other aspects of humanity, we've got places to work. But in terms of just surviving, we're doing fine. Um, and so my metabolic adaptation is going to happen. All we're trying to do is attenuate exactly how severe that fighting is in terms of us working toward our goal and our body fighting back. So I think a sensible rate of weight loss, potentially using nonlinear approaches, using your macronutrient distribution well, using your training program well, these are all things that can help to mitigate some of those effects. And because of that, I, I really tend to lean away from saying, hey, you need to make sure you hit like a really inappropriate amount of steps every day that's just going to keep you walking around like you're just wandering throughout your life. Um, there's little things you can do that aren't that terrible, you know? So like for me right now, I do a lot of writing. Sometimes I'll, I'll be like, man, I, I've barely moved all day. When you find yourself in that position, whether you're dieting or not, take a walk. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's just generally good to not be completely sedentary and just working out for an hour, like, you know, doing a, a, a chest and tricep workout for an hour doesn't make mm. you not sedentary. You know what I mean? Like, I think a lot of people lie to themselves and convince themselves like, no, I work out like five days a week. I'm not sedentary. It's like, yeah, but you don't move. Like, you like go and like, yeah. you did like five by five on bench, a couple accessory exercises. But for the most part of your life, you don't move. Um, That's And, and, and I, I fall I, into that. And so I, yeah. I make a habit, whether I'm prepping or not, I take walks because like you, you're supposed to move sometimes. So I don't think there's anything wrong with telling someone who is on a weight loss diet, hey, try not to be completely sedentary. If you've been sitting down for like four hours straight, take a walk around the block. I think that's fine. But I shy away from saying, hey, you know, uh, make sure your leg is always fidgeting when you're sitting down working or <laughs> ma make sure that you, you know, do like 20,000 steps a day or something. I, I, I don't like yeah. putting that on people. Yeah, that what you said there about the sedentary thing is so true. I think um, that's something that when I was first trying to calculate, this is I don't know many years ago, but when I was first trying to calculate 
maybe what my maintenance calories would be and getting more into tracking. I was like, oh, I work out, you know, six times like per week, uh, sometimes do a two day, like I'm for sure in that high to very high activity range. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. really, I'm, I'm like near like more of the low end. So whenever I now do that, I make sure to put low because if I'm not working out, I'm either at, at the time I was studying, but now I'm doing work or just in my house or at the gym and being at the gym is a little bit higher if I'm coaching, but still that's a big, uh, that's so true for people to, to realize that. Yeah. It's crazy. You know, I, I was the same way. I used to think like, Oh me, I'm, you know, I'm a competitive bodybuilder who, who could be yeah. more active than that. But, yeah. <laughs> but it's like, no, I just sit at my desk and write all day and read. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's pretty, that's pretty funny. Um, should we move into talking about resistance training? Or yeah, so I, I think if we can uh, start with why aerobic training alone might not be, and, and you've kind of hinted at it and put it together in, in pieces as we've been speaking, but but why resistance? Sorry, why aerobic training alone? As is, maybe you go to your uh, primary care physician and. Uh, uh, your BMI spits out a certain number. Uh, will they select from their computer, uh, train uh, aerobically 30 to 45 minutes a day, a, a day, three days a week? Why is that the recommendation? And why might that not be the best thing? So, or might be the best thing? yeah, when it comes to aerobic exercise, I get it. Um, you know, if, if you look at exercise as a mechanism to improve cardiovascular health, which is how most clinicians and medical practitioners look at it, then aerobic exercise is, is a, an ideal way to do that. Um, so mm -hmm. I, I am by no means against the general premise of aerobic exercise. Um, mm -hmm. Now, when it comes to weight loss, um, there, there's multiple really well done studies that that essentially kind of show the same thing time and time again and what that is is if your only goal was to weigh less so just to have a lower number on the scale yeah doing aerobic exercise only would be probably fine but that's almost never the goal usually the goal is to improve a more comprehensive look at health and function, um, mm -hmm. you know, and, and so like al almost everyone I work with, they don't just want to weigh less. They want to look better. They want to, you know, they, they want their body composition to improve and that's different than just losing weight. And so what you'll see in these studies that have been been done quite well is aerobic exercise will help you lose weight, but the combination of aerobic exercise and resistance training will allow you to lose weight, but also to maintain the muscle mass that you have. And 10 times out of 10, you, you when you main, maintain muscle as you lose fat, you're going to feel better. You are going to look better. On most physical uh, challenges, you will perform better. It, it is a generally better type of weight loss when you have some combinate when you maintain resistance training in that program. So aerobic training itself is as it's your only exercise intervention is probably not ideal for weight loss. 
Um, there, there are yeah, other benefits of aerobic exercise that resistance training doesn't give us. Um, so I, I don't, I don't like to tell people, Hey, never do aerobic exercise, just lift weights. Uh, but there, there's room for both. Mm-hmm. Um, would you say, Eric, that this is, um, a, because, you know, we have athletes who enjoy both strength training and resistance training. You could say that it's concurrent training. You said strength and resistance. Oh, jeez, <laughs> Strength and endurance training. Sorry. Um, uh, you could say that it's some, some form of concurrent training plan, uh, from, and we've never really spoken about a concurrent training plan because this is a relatively untapped area of training from a research standpoint, but it sounds like from a, a, a weight loss standpoint and from a cursory understanding that I have of this, might it be that it wouldn't really even require that much resistance training to maintain some of that muscle while also doing some endurance training? Um, well, it depends. Um, I, I would say it depends um, exactly how well trained you are from a resistance training perspective. Um, you know, if if you are really pushing the upper limit of muscularity and have a tremendous amount of muscle mass, it's going to take some work to maintain that during weight loss, you know? So for a sedentary person, it really doesn't take much resistance training at all to maintain the muscle they have as they're losing weight with some aerobic exercise. But, but it's all really contextual based on where you're starting at. Um, now the interference effect or or like concurrent training, um, that is something that I do like to talk about. Um, so concurrent training, the the idea is that you, you're essentially giving two very different, uh, training stimuli, resistance training, you know, stimulating muscle growth. Um, and, and the idea is that there's some kind of interference where aerobic exercise, like you know, lower intensity endurance training will interfere with your strength gains, your power gains, your gains in muscle mass, uh, because they're, you know, from a, even from the molecular perspective, they're, they're kind of sending mixed signals to the muscle in terms of how it should adapt to exercise. And there actually is a decent amount of research on this. And, uh, I was a few months ago, I was in Finland really nervous because I was talking about it in front of a lot of the researchers who like basically did the foundational research on the topic. Um, Mm. So like uh, Dr. Hakkinen out in the University of Yavaskula in Finland. I mean, he's a legend in this area and uh, Juha Atienen was there. He's done work in it. So I was very nervous, but uh, you know, luckily they, they gave me their stamp of approval and said, yeah, that's how we see it. And I was like, great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, these guys have been studying it from like literally before I was born. Um, but when it comes to concurrent training, context is critically important. And if, if you want to, if you enjoy cardio and you enjoy resistance training, you can make a plan that has both and there's really minimal interference. Um, the only, the thing that gets difficult is when you start to get to higher volumes and higher frequencies of resistance training and adding on higher volumes and higher frequency of cardio training, that's where the interference becomes a little bit more inevitable. Um, there, there really is a dose effect of this. 
Um, so if, if you wanted to, you know, lift twice a week and do cardio twice a week, you're probably assuming that it's not just insane amounts of both. You're probably not going to see much interference. The interference that you do see affects power more than it affects strength and it affects strength more than it affects hypertrophy. Um, so from, from me, from the perspective of a bodybuilder, it takes quite a lot to start really impairing hypertrophy in terms of adding on cardio. Um, but if, if I were strictly a power athlete, that, that, that is power adaptations are most susceptible to interference in a concurrent training program. And that's where you have to be careful about not just how much cardio is getting added, but how often you're doing it and how close to your power oriented training sessions is it occurring. And as a, as a very broad recommendation, I would say if power is your main interest, you would ideally do your cardio on completely separate days from when you're doing your more power oriented training. We, um, and Kyle actually consults for his own, um, training. So as to better his coaching with, um, a sports performance coach for Renaissance periodization, Alex Harrison, who we've had on the show a few times, who, when he so he trained uh, bobsled and was on the uh, the U.S. I think he was an Olympic hopeful mm-hmm. and fortunately he broke his foot yeah and, and got injured in an untimely fashion. But he would say that he'd have his wife and he's a researcher, mind you, even when he was this high level bobsledder. He would have his wife walk out to the, the front of the yard to grab the paper because that was just far too much aerobic uh, <laughs> uh, interference. And of course, that's probably the most extreme example you can think of. But you know, in, in talking with him, he was also explaining how the interference effect, and he actually found a study, I think in, from 2017, and I don't know if it was from, from one of the researchers that you'd mentioned, that says that the, the interference effect at least with what we found with any statistical significance uh, does not exist for untrained populations. Uh, and that's what you mentioned that it's going to be harder to maintain that muscle mass, the more trained that you are. So it sounds like that concurrent training plan could be a really good idea for people and just starting on their weight loss journey. Yeah, I would say so. And I mean, I, I would even take it one step further. Um, we have evidence in like truly untrained people actually showing that exercise modalities that we would consider cardio actually induce hypertrophy. Uh, yeah, I've actually seen that, that, that one, I, I don't know if it's a study or review that there is like walking and, and or running induced like the same hypertrophy as some sort of leg training and the untrained or something like that. Yeah. And it, it's, it's, <laughs> For it, I, I would, so to say it induces the same, it, it would be, I, yeah. I would say you either it it might have been a very short study or maybe not a very impressive resistance training protocol. Um, yeah. But <laughs> but, um, but no, the, the point still holds that if you're if you are truly untrained and you embark on essentially any type of exercise, you're probably you're quite likely to see some type of hypertrophy induced, even if it's running or reasonably high intensity cycling. Um, so that's another, now, if you are reasonably well-trained as a resistance trained athlete, you are going to see no such thing. And in fact, might see a little bit of interference going the other direction. 
Um, mm-hmm. So it, it's really critical when, when you talk about things like the interference effect, especially to consider where the person is starting from and what it's going to take to maintain that level of adaptation. Mm-hmm. Um, so so what, what I do is I, I don't tell people I normally interact with bodybuilders, but, you know, not exclusively, but that's kind of the perspective that I see this question through most often. Uh, I, I don't tell people to actively avoid cardio, but I do tell them to, when they're using it for, for weight loss, to kind of get back to your original question, you have to implement cardio in a very cautious manner. You know, you have to add it in very judiciously and carefully so that you are not going to induce a great deal of interference. But even on top of that, you know, we're talking about metabolic adaptation, right? If, if you're a resistance trained person who's trying to get pretty darn lean. Um, so we're also talking about exacerbating a lot of hormone related. I don't want to say issues, but, you know, we're, even without adding the cardio in, you're probably operating at lower testosterone and higher cortisol than normal. Do we really want to hit you with a huge load of training that you're unable to recover from and drive that testosterone cortisol ratio in an even more unfavorable direction? Um, yeah. You're in this place where metabolically, uh, you know, there's a lot of suppression going on and you're not in an ideal spot to recover from really robust training. Um so you have to be very careful about going too, too aggressive when it comes to adding in cardio. Um, and I actually, my most recent prep, I actually did no structured cardio. Um, I don't use, I don't, uh, give like a general recommendation to do that, but it, it was quite an interesting process. Yeah. I, um, I don't, can't remember if you mentioned this earlier, but isn't it also possible that if you added in this cardio that you could potentially downregulate some other areas of need so it could just come out like it, it, it adds, but then in the other areas come down, so it just comes out to, to nothing really? There, there is some research suggesting that when we start to get into very high levels of mm. structured cardio – that total daily energy expenditure, there seems to be some kind of like ceiling level where like there's this like basically the body constrains other aspects of energy expenditure to try to make sure that you're not going completely overboard with your energy expenditure. I believe that ceiling is achieved at pretty high levels of cardio um, mm, okay. I, I, I have to go back and look, I know the, the, the paper that, that has been, has written about this topic and it was, it was very good. Um, but I mean, it, it's, I mean, I don't, I don't know the exact limit, but that, that definitely is a thing. And I also don't mm. think that there's a specific limit that you can generally say, once you cross this rigid line, that's where the suppression starts. So I think generally in theory that does hold that if, if your yeah. if your weight loss plan is to just cardio yourself to death, um, there will be some um, some level of constraint with regards to other aspects of energy expenditure. So I I, th- I think this is a good time to bring this up because I think it falls under what might be a similar response, but I'm not entirely sure. Is that 
you know, when high intensity interval training became quite popular and to say that it was popularized by CrossFit, I think would be wrong, but maybe it's not. Um, around that time I was studying and people, this, this is when I was at Chapel Hill and people would reference uh, epoch uh, and that your excess post exercise oxygen consumption that somehow not that somehow that you were kind of like more metabolically active for longer periods of time after was a very significant piece in why how high intensity interval training can be uh, very helpful uh, and if not superior uh, at the time I think at least in in pop culture or at least in in just <laughs> uh, you know people's uh, um, uh, trends, whether it was interests or a, 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 whether it was anecdotal, was that you could just do a whole lot of intensity for for greater return due to this epoch. Does this talk or just do high intensity, or just do high intensity, and that somehow in and of itself that's more beneficial for weight loss? Yeah, yeah. like people would look at their heart rate monitors that aren't met for that kind of activity, and be like, "Oh man, I burnt nine hundred calories." Yeah. But um, does this fall into the same uh, context? Uh, Eric, where uh, NEAT plays such a significant role in this that EPOC just doesn't really even matter? Um, I wouldn't say it doesn't matter. Um, not to say, like, we, I don't mean, I don't, we, we have CrossFit athletes. This is not to say that we're anti-high-intensity interval training. This, this is just to help educate people who think that the only way that they can be successful losing weight is with high-intensity interval training alone. Well, yeah, so... That's an easier <laughs> question to answer. <laughs> um, so you don't you don't need high intensity interval training to lose weight. You don't need any kind of cardio to lose weight. Um, what what we look at with weight loss, the way I've always viewed it is, if we want it to be good weight loss, you ought to be weight training, um, uh, be, because the the effects uh, on lean mass retention, you, you, whether you're doing it for health or function or appearance, I think you're going to like it better if you also did resistance training. So what beyond the resistance training, the question is how much cardio needs to be added and what type. If you're comfortable doing very restrictive dieting, you don't need any cardio at all. Um, and like I said, the, the most effective contest prep I ever had featured no cardio at all. Um, I, it was the leanest I ever got. I won my pro card. It was a very successful prep. Um, I've done preps with a lot of low intensity cardio. I've done preps with a lot of high intensity cardio. It all works. What you need to do is do some weight training and find a way to make a caloric deficit exist. You could do that by doing more activity, which could be non-exercise activity. You could just take a lot of walks. You could do structured low intensity cardio. You could do high intensity intervals. You just need to make an energy deficit one way or another. Um, now the epoch, I think some people say, oh, it doesn't matter at all. Some people say because of epoch, we've found the only way that people should be exercising. I think both are wrong. I think, you know, is the epoch bigger um, in magnitude after intervals versus, you know, low intensity stuff? Absolutely. 
it's just a feature of the exercise. Like that's just what happens. And that's why you can do a very short amount of, you know, a short duration of cardio and still instigate a a pretty tremendous amount of energy expenditure. Um, The EPOC is part of that. Um, I don't think it necessarily makes it better or worse than low intensity cardio. And, you know, what we're looking at there is, do you want to, you're essentially looking at the time course of, of energy expenditure, which in the long run just doesn't matter whether you burned it all during the, the bout or some during the bout and some in a few hours after the bout. That just doesn't matter to me whatsoever. Um, it's really just how much energy expenditure were you able to to do essentially um, and has that put you in a caloric deficit? I, I think mm. rather than worrying about the whether it was, you know, energy spent during the bout or energy spent after the bout, what's more important is implementing a frequency and duration and intensity of cardio that a lot that fits your preferences and also allows you to effectively recover. Um, I, I think one of the yeah. one of the things that I struggle with. I mean, listen, if if you're reasonably well-fed and you're like, you know, a male at like a male at like 15% body fat or a female at like 22% body fat, you're eating well, you're sleeping at night, you, you can, you can go wild with high intensity stuff. If you're a male at 5% body fat or a female at like 10 or 11, and you've been dieting for four months and you're in a reasonably big caloric deficit, um, you might rethink exactly how much high intensity interval training you can effectively recover from and still come in and and hit a hard resistance training workout tomorrow. Um, So I I think when it comes to how much and how, how much cardio you can implement and what intensity you can manage, that really comes down to what state you're in, in terms of the ability to recover. And so when I do my work with bodybuilding and physique athletes, I'm not worried about EPOC. I'm not worried about, you know, the little stuff like that. What I'm worried about is if I give you, you know, 14 super intense sprints, are you going to wake up tomorrow and feel like you got hit by a truck and I'm going to go ask you to do like some actual effective squat and deadlift reps. Um, that's to me the much more important thing to balance when we talk high intensity interval training. I like it. I mean, if I'm in the off season and I don't want to do a ton of cardio, but I'd like to get something in there. Of course. Yeah. I'd love to, you know, do one minute on one minute off or like 30 on in, you know, two minutes off. And just, you know, get after it on the treadmill, on the bike, whatever. Go outside, do some sprints. I I like high-intensity training in general as a training modality. Um, And even for as as something to help promote that deficit for weight loss. Why not? You know, the the biggest thing is you have to make sure that you're implementing it in a way that complements the rest of your training and doesn't push your training over the edge of what you can recover from. I'm glad you brought up the the fatigue management thing because that's what that's something I was going to ask about and how that may affect uh, your weight loss if you're not recovering. What what that means? Do you still does that affect your knee 
especially more for the general population, I guess, because if someone's doing high intensity intervals, let's say every day, um, and they're not recovering, would that affect the rate at which they lose? Could they still, um, and I guess also would it affect kind of the body composition quality, let's say, even if they are still doing some resistance training. Does that, does that make sense what I'm asking? I guess? Yeah, I think so. Um, so it would kind of depend on exactly how sadistic you are, like <laughs> how many screws you have loose mentally in terms of like, can you continue even though you feel terrible and are completely not recovered? Can you still show up the next day and convince yourself to do it again? And actually do yeah. it. Um, and if you're able to, you will still continue b- by doing good, high quality work output. You will still continue uh, to create a deficit and you will still continue to need to get that energy from somewhere. And it will be fat, most likely. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can still keep that that fat loss going. One of the things that should probably be mentioned, though is when you start taking that route where you're failing to recover, your training load and intensity is is quite high. Uh, this is something that happened to me in, in one of my very early preps as a bodybuilder. I had just recently dropped my calories and I expected a great deal of fat loss. And I was also doing a lot of high intensity training at the time on top of my weightlifting. And you know, I have an idea of how I expect this fat loss to go and I'm watching the scale and it's not coming. And I'm like, oh, well, that's weird, but we'll give it a couple days. It's still not coming. And the scale's just not budging. It's been several days at this point. I expected pretty substantial weight loss and I'm getting nothing. And what was probably going on was I was training myself into the dirt, not recovering whatsoever. My cortisol was probably through the roof And one of the many things cortisol can do is cause a little bit of fluid retention. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, cortisol can actually um, bind to the receptors that aldosterone is supposed to bind to um, and and can kind of cause some of these water retention um, outcomes. And so basically I decided I was very frustrated with the lack of weight loss because I certainly should have been losing quite a lot over the, you know, week or two that I had, that I had just been through. So I said, screw it. And I just didn't go to the gym for like four or five days. I stayed on my normal diet and I just, I didn't give up. I just said, the only thing that I can accept now is that I have just cortisol coming out of my ears and I need to chill. And so I did chill. And in the, you know, four or five days that I just didn't go near the gym, I think, three and a half pounds just kind of disappeared. And then, uh, you know, I started looking at my weight trajectories and, and one, once that kind of fluid retention just kind of dissipated and worked itself out, I was right on track for where I thought I'd be. Um, and so while it was a frustrating process, it was very informative. And now when I work with people and they're like stressing out because they should have been losing weight and it's not happening and they're, I'm like, well, how do you feel? And they're like, well, I'm very stressed and I don't feel like I'm recovered. And it's like, okay, well, let's just not go near the gym for a couple of days. Stay on your diet. Just don't go near the gym and try to chill, read a book, you know? And, and a lot of times what will happen is cortisol will come back down to a normal human level 
and some of that water retention will work itself out and you're right where you thought you should be. You just couldn't see it because of cortisol. I've heard some bodybuilding coaches say this and I don't know how accurate this is. Uh, this is a much less pressing question than I know what, what, what Kyle's is. Um, is that, can, can you, because I feel like I have, but I'm questioning it, is when you look back on that and your experience since you first started bodybuilding, can you tell that difference when you're holding that water and, and you're wondering what, like when you look at uh, in the mirror as for why that could not be happening? Um, can you tell it visually? Is that the question? Yeah. And having kind of like a softness where you're like, oh, I'm doing everything right, but it's just like things don't look. I, I would say some people probably can. Um, it, it really depends on how finely tuned your bodybuilding eye is. Um, I, I would say some people with a good eye can probably tell. Um, and, you know, I'd like to think I can pick up on it, but you usually I like to I, you know, looks can be very deceiving. I yeah. usually like to try to triangulate information. So what I'll do is I'll say, well, okay, well, looking at myself in the mirror or looking at somebody else, I'll say, okay, it looks like there's a little bit of just like blurriness or puffiness. Let's look at the weight trajectories. Let's look at what we would expect the weight trajectories to be. And when you start to say like, oh yeah, I there should have been some weight loss here that we're not seeing and you look kind of puffy and you, based on talking to you, you feel like you're very poorly recovered and pretty beat up. Triangulating that information is usually when you can figure out, okay, we need to scale back the training for at least a few days, uh, maybe even bring calories close to maintenance uh, to facilitate that process, but but certainly back off the training. Um I can tell you for me, my eyes, when I try to evaluate my own physique, because I always do my own preps, um, which sucks. <laughs> and mo- yeah. Even like really good coaches I know, they hire other coaches for their own prep. But I'm just too stubborn. I can't let anybody do it for me. I should, but I don't. Yeah. But for me, it's never the, it's never the visual because my eyes always play tricks on me when it's my body. Um, so I don't even deal, I don't even bother with it. I look at the weight and I look at, or I don't look at, but I just consider how crappy do I feel? And you can feel when you've just been trained into the dirt. And usually that's, that's when you see that and you have to take a, take a couple, basically just pump the brakes in terms of training. Uh, I have two more questions, I think, and one might be a good ending question as we're over 75 minutes here or about is one with the high intensity interval training. Um, I know you mentioned, uh, cause as we're speaking about it, it probably is more of that minute on minute off 30 seconds on 30 seconds off. Uh, but often how it might be implemented is like, uh, eight minutes, uh, let's say eight minute AMRAP or, um, maybe just one, like two minute for a time. What, would there be differences in uh, the responses there? Or even if it's like a 20-minute um, AMRAP, let's say, something that's not what you would maybe consider in literature as high-intensity intervals. And that's I think it's been called more just high-intensity training. Um, the short answer is yes. Um, and th- this kind of gets into a philosophical question. Um, 
And so like, you know, back in the day, I used to do that all the time, you know, like I've, I've never competed in CrossFit, but when I was a wrestler, uh, competitively in high school, we would, we would do a lot of the things that you see in, in, in some, some CrossFit type wads or, or, or exercises, mm-hmm. you know, we, we would start with, you know, do X number of reps with you know, like a, a compound movement and kind of basically do high intensity circuits with a variety of resistance type exercises. Um, so that, I mean, as far as from my perspective, that's, you know, pretty synonymous with, with CrossFit. Um, and I like that modality of training for a lot of different people. Um, but it, it, it kind of puts you like you're, like you're alluding to, it puts you in a spot of like, is that resistance training? Is it high intensity training? It doesn't, it, it's not truly intervals because there's not a great deal of rest between, you know, from one exercise to the next, the duration of it is, it's certainly not like a 30 minute jog, right? It's like an eight minute or a six minute bout. And it kind of forces you to deal with the fact that exercise exists on a spectrum. And it's a spectrum that could range from super low intensity, long duration, steady state movement, all the way to remarkably explosive kind of single repetition type stuff and everything in between. And high intensity training and high intensity intervals basically occupy this middle ground where we start to see uh, heavy contribution of anaerobic metabolism. Mm -hmm. Uh, We see uh, increased cardiac output, um, but not to the extent that we would see it in more traditional cardio. It it kind of exists in this middle ground. You know, will we see an increase in VO2 max from consistent training of that type? Yes. It won't be as much as we would probably expect from a more traditional running or biking program or, you know, and insert whatever cardio modality that that you'd like. So, yeah, the response will be a little bit different and it's going to depend on what kind of loads were used and how long was the active exercise duration and how long was the rest period and how frequent were the rest periods. Um, mm. There's a lot. <laughs> a lot of factors to consider that do kind of push it m- more toward one side or the other of that spectrum. And so it, it, it's hard to, you know, you can't say, oh, you're going to recover from that exactly the way you would and have the exact same a- adaptations as cycling one minute on one minute off. Um, <laughs> and just adding in again, just my own personal anecdote with that, because you mentioned the significance of fatigue management for weight loss is that, you know, I, I enjoy that style of training. I, I enjoy helping our athletes who compete in the sport of CrossFit. But when it comes to a, a weight loss standpoint, at least for my own goals, because I do want to continue to get bigger and stronger, is that from a fatigue management standpoint, it just got too tricky. So that if I would use cardio, it would be kind of like low eccentric loading. I, I low. I can. I could keep it uh, to a low fatiguing aspect so that I wouldn't uh, have a detriment to my squats and to my uh, deadlifts, for instance, as you mentioned, the next day. Whereas if I was throwing compounds at it every which manner, I just couldn't really say for certain if I'd be recovered the next day. Uh, That for me, just again, because it wasn't about getting uh, to the best level of CrossFit fitness that I could get to, it was wanting to get bigger and stronger. 
that for me highlights and just kind of echoes now the significance of fatigue management uh, there. So I think that's a really good point. Yeah. And, um, and I would say, you know, for me, like as a bodybuilder, I very much like the approach of doing my resistance training. Uh, you know, when I'm prepping, it's very bodybuilding oriented and then doing pretty low intensity, very predictable stuff that doesn't take a lot out of me. So for my cardio approach these days, it's as little as possible. And when I do some cardio, it's essentially walking. Um, I, I just like to go on walks and try to burn off some calories. But, you know, something like a CrossFit approach, if you're telling me, Eric, I want to get, you know, I want to maintain some muscle. I, I'd like to be fairly muscular, but I don't want to be a bodybuilder. And I want to get lean at the same time. And I'm going to give you three hours a week of training, you know, three, one hour bouts. I think a CrossFit type thing is a very effective way to do that. You know, you're, you're ramping up your energy expenditure more than normal resistance training. And you're, you might not be fully depends on how you program it, but you might not be fully maximizing your muscle growth, but you're still moving some weights around. So Mm -hmm. I, I think there's applications where that totally makes sense. Um, but again, it's just a matter of how, what kind of exercise you enjoy, what your goals are, and how you're going to manage the the recovery from the overall load of what you're doing. And that actually segues pretty good into to my last question, which would be, let's say you uh, owned a gym, Eric, and you had a, uh, adult classes, general population, and um, what kind of programming would you employ? Obviously, it would cl- include resistance training, uh, and potentially some uh, aerobic training because obviously a lot of people who come, they're looking for body composition changes, but also just general health. Uh, but I guess would you obviously, um, would you uh, bias it towards resistance training? Would you include some high intensity? Um, kind of that, uh, um, I can't think of the word right now. <laughs> but like, I, yeah, how would you, how do you think you would program for things if you were, running that kind of scenario it's a a group training session yeah group training session um i would say i would probably start out with kind of a main compound lift for the day um really focus in on it uh very very technique oriented um basically say hey when you know when we're doing squats or deadlifts we're focusing um you know be really hands-on with that instruction once the main kind of very technical compound is out of the way, transition towards some of some accessory exercises that could potentially be done in like a circuit training type manner. And then I would probably, I wouldn't spend time on steady state aerobic stuff because time's of the essence when you're talking group training. Um, mm-hmm. So then I'd probably get into kind of a a pretty short, like, you know, try to get the most bang for your buck by doing a, like a pretty high intensity interval type interval type uh cardio modality to kind of finish off for the day um so i, I would just kind of if i had to i would work my way down the, down the chain like that so start with the more technical high load stuff then get into mm-hmm. some of the less technical um accessory stuff that's maybe a little bit more suitable for circuit type training and then kind of end off with uh, a repeated sprint type exercise. 
Well, yeah, if we didn't already have buy-in around what we're trying to do with our gym in Asheville, then Kyle just served you up the biggest softball, and you just hit a home run on the <laughs> style of training uh, that we program. That's exactly, yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> I, I did ask for some selfish reasons because that's exactly how I program our adult classes. So I wanted to see if that if that matched up. Well, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be your source of confirmation bias. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you, you, I had the biggest grin on while you were saying that, just looking at Kyle. That is so funny. Well, uh, Eric, this has been, I think, a great talk hitting on a lot of really uh, awesome points. Um, I think what I'm realizing now is the role. I, I think about this in, in many contexts, actually. It's just like um, I'll think about uh, injury risk. I'll think about um, the interference effect, you know, dieting and how much of it really comes down to the plan and how the plan monitors fatigue. I really am increasingly recognizing how important fatigue management is for all aspects of what we're discussing in both performance and in dieting. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's foundational and it's, it's annoying because, when you start putting together aspects of a caloric deficit, resistance training, aerobic training, and then managing the kind of uh, recovery and fatigue aspects, it's very hard to just say like, well, here's three bullet points. Here's how you get really jacked. Um, I wish I could package it that way, but I just think it deserves more attention and more nuance than that. No, I, I, I totally agree. And um, I'm trying, I just lost my train of thought. But you know what? I think, Eric, we've taken a lot of your time. We're, we are very grateful for it. I, um, I, I love the uh, Eric Sobolisky connection right off the bat. That was too funny. Yeah, that's pretty great. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to seeing, Eric, what you put out um, via Stronger by Science. I know people can head over there strongerbyscience.com. Is there anywhere else where people can learn more about you, stay up to date on what you are doing uh, outside of the blog? Um, or the website? Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm a, trying to get more active on social media. I used to be bad at it when I was like purely a researcher. Uh, but now that I'm kind of out into the real world of training and stuff, um, you know, I'm on Facebook. Um, my Twitter handle is at Eric Trexler and my Instagram is at Trexler Fitness. Um, so yeah, re reach out to me there. And, you know, like I mentioned, I'm, I'm a, a bodybuilder who has done some powerlifting and has done some team sports, but, uh, you know, it's stronger by science. It's kind of strength related sport in general. So we, we do bodybuilding, powerlifting, CrossFit type stuff. Um, you know, we're interested in all of it. So if you want to reach out to me on any of those social media platforms and, and get some feedback or an opinion or, hey, here's this new science article, what do you think about it? Um, reach out. Awesome. Well, and I don't know if you know this, but we, so we've been trying to get Sobo on social media and he just refuses. Yeah, call him out. Yeah, that doesn't, that doesn't sound like Sobo. It, and, and, but his only only... He only exists on Twitter. It has since changed, but he was Dr. Swole uh, for many years. He just won't make the move, but I'm glad, and hopefully as you hear this, Eric, 
Sobolewski, you're thinking maybe you ought to, because it's nice to have people like yourself, uh, Eric, who uh, have put in the time academically, who have put in the time in the gym, and are now presenting it on their social platforms. I think it's really important. And as we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, it's kind of what's contributed to practitioners listening. Uh, so again, thank you for your time. Uh, uh, the words out people when someone's not there in person, we do have to say goodbye, but it's not goodbye. There's a moments that we have to say uh, hello again shortly thereafter. So we'll say goodbye, Eric, for now. Uh, he'll say goodbye to you all. Uh, uh, that's concrete, but Eric, thanks again for coming on. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks everybody for listening and, uh, don't be afraid to reach out on social media. Great. Thanks guys.